Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter has been giving instructions to a suffering church during times of Roman persecution, and he addressed the leaders of this church not to be domineering, not to use people as pawns or tools, but as valuable members of the body of Christ. He sets in motion a, a shepherd model of ministry as opposed to just an entrepreneurial or CEO model that's usually employed today. And he takes great pains in describing the manner of ministry, integrity, grace, relationships in the body, taking precedent over other, you know, external results within ministry and evaluating ministry. And he now turns his attention away from leaders and to the rest of the church. And so that's what we're going to talk about today in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As I was thinking about these themes today that we're going to talk about, it, it strikes me at how easy it is for sermons to kind of fall into, you know, the five secrets of humility, the five ways to overcome pride, and try to formulize this. My experience with pride is ongoing, as yours is. Uh, we might have unique temptations because of what we do, but we all struggle with it. Anybody who tells me they're over pride doesn't understand, because the flesh is in us, and we're all prideful. Uh, if you think you're not, just ask your spouse. Um, she'll tell you. Um, and I don't mean Janet's always telling me that, but I am just mean our spouse always knows because sees our flesh, all right, that uh, we, live, uh, we live with this ever-present um, part of us that can be very prideful. And I, I just want to shy away from trying to uh, act like this is easy um, or that there's some kind of formula for this because there's not. It's a messy thing, right? You know, I think of, I think of Job, and I, is there, what, 42 chapters in the book of Job? You know, he loses his uh, family, his livelihood, his health. And you basically have Job, through the whole book, struggling with understanding why God would do this. Now, we know the ending. He's humbled. That's good. Okay? Uh, but to get there, it was a great struggle. And by the way, his friends were not helpful. Uh, his friends had no empathy, but they did have a lot of lessons to give him. A lot of instruction telling him what he should do, what he should know. And uh, as most of us know, that is usually not helpful in a situation like Job was in. What I find fascinating is that God was not condemning Job with the, the tension that was in his life, with the struggle that was 
that was there. And he really struggled. He was angry with God. Now, he never thumbed his nose at God, but there was a, there was a real you know, angst with God. And, and God later calls Job faithful through all of this. I find that fascinating. And I, I think that's encouraging that, that God allows these times in our life in which we struggle and we suffer and uh, we don't always get the answer we want and uh, things aren't turning out the way we want. And yet God is... is uh, pleased that we're continuing to, to seek him. So I find that encouraging, and I find that, that this uh, time of, um, uh, of living here on this earth can, um, can be messy, and that God understands that uh, we're struggling with this. And again, I never want to say that I'm over it, speaking of pride, um, but uh, I am welcoming that process, okay? So, just felt like that needed to be said, because if anything comes out of my mouth henceforth that, that sounds like um, I got it down, or that uh, if you'll only do this, it's over, scratch that and throw it out. I, I don't mean to communicate that, that message at all, okay? So, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Likewise. So, he's, he's connecting leaders' motives and the rewards that come for faithful leadership now to the congregation and their uh, rewards and their motives. Like the church greatly benefits from mature spiritual leaders, so it benefits from a congregation that responds to leaders with humility. Now, these are not words that give clearance to leaders to be negligent. Uh, neither is this saying leaders should not be accountable. It's simply giving the other side of a coin for a healthy church to include honor, deference, and respect to its leaders. Peter actually uses a kind of weighty word when he says subject, or some even translate it submissive. Don't we all love that word, submissive, right? When, when Peter specifies the younger, it does not mean older people are not to respond appropriately, but most commentators think that Peter's just recognizing that, that the young are more prone to resist leaders. Such an injunction, I think, is especially pertinent today, where it's easy to hide behind a computer screen and to give our opinion and to be critical and spew without face-to-face -face communication. Peter is not advocating that. It's certainly not a new theme for Peter, submission. Uh, he's admonished the church to be submissive to government authorities in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. He's told slaves, uh, which we could apply to uh, employees to be sub, um, submissive, to submit to their masters or employers in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Then in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, before you blow a gasket, 
Uh, we also see where Paul was telling the whole church to be submissive to one another. And what it means is that we can set aside our needs for the moment to do what is good for the community. So uh, the good of the church community, the good of the family or marriage, the, the good of the company, the good of the government must be valued to where I am willing to make personal sacrifices. The word used for subject, again, also translated submissive, is hupotasso, and it means to line up under. It's a military term that means to get in line under leadership. And in our context, in 1 Peter 5, the idea is that we follow the wisdom and leadership of the elders or the church leaders. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, just so you know, this is not a unique concept to Peter. Uh, it says that the church is to be subject or submissive to the household of Stephanus, who apparently were also leading in the church. And it says in verse 16, be subject to such as these. Later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, we read, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Notice one of the benefits is peace in the body of Christ because everyone is headed in the same direction instead of backbiting, you know, fighting, or harboring an agenda. We read again in Hebrews, remember your leaders, those who speak to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Again, in verse 17 of Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There has been a lot of groaning the last three or four years. I'm not going to recant what about, you all are aware. Now, listen, when we look at this, these verses are not advocating a blind obedience. That's not what it's saying. These are not advocating you never bring up a concern. That's not what it's saying. Uh, these are not advocating supporting a leader who arrogantly doesn't receive instruction and then demands only loyalty. I would never want to follow somebody like that. But when a leader is operating in humility, they welcome respectful input, particularly in the church. And if they speak something that's not aligned with truth, the humble leader will be glad to correct it. However, there's another part to this. There's a responsibility of the church, right, to basically you know, pull the same end of the rope as the leaders. And then it said here in our passages that no one wants a leader who works begrudgingly because he feels he's being taken advantage of or consistently disrespected. And I've, I've mentioned this before and uh, had this confirmed with several other uh, denominational 
people that I talk with that they're losing pastors or dropping like flies in the past two or three years because uh, when they speak the word of God as they see it, as the word is plainly given, that people don't like that because we have become so partisan. There's so much tribalism in the church that it's difficult to achieve any kind of unity. And this is of no benefit to the church. And that's what uh, Hebrews was saying. No benefit to the church. No advantage. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. President Theodore Roosevelt, who, as we know, loved the outdoors. That's well documented. Uh, he was responsible for the creation of several national parks and monuments. And in his first inaugural address, he speaks, he speaks freely of the blessings of God upon our nation. And I quote him. He said, I reverently invoke from my guidance the direction and favor of Almighty God. Isn't that wonderful to hear from a president? Yeah. It's said that when Roosevelt entertained diplomatic guests at the White House, he was fond of taking them out to the back lawn at the end of the day. And as the president stood gazing at the night sky, all eyes would eventually be turned heavenward, just as his were. Uh, and in his day, by the way, the vast array of stars was not dimmed by city lights. And this magna magnificent display of God's brilliant creation would just overcome he and his guests. And after a long moment, Roosevelt would say this. He said, gentlemen, I believe we are small enough now. Let's go to bed. And as we gaze upon this theme of humility, I trust that we too can say we are small enough now and we can get to this business of living. And we realize there is a lot of trouble in life with pride. I'm not over it. You're not over it. Uh, but humility brings with it many blessings. Peter says to put on the clothing of humility. Now, he's not asking us to dress like pilgrims, but rather to be easily recognized by our humility like we recognize clothes. This is a specific word that means to tie in a knot and it was often used of a slave's apron. Remember when Jesus tied an apron around himself at the Last Supper? John 13 says Jesus took a towel and he girded himself, took water, began to wash the disciples' feet. He girded himself with humility. And we're to follow that example with humility toward one another. Notice our passage in 1 Peter 5 says the entire congregation is to be clothed in humility. Every leader, every person. By the way, it doesn't mean perfection, right? 
It means we own our sin. We own our mistakes. It means we're not so concerned about getting the credit. It means we're not trying to put others in their place. It means we're not being critical of others. Humility is the ability to see ourselves as God sees us. Nothing more, but also nothing less. We truthfully address the gaps between where we are and where we should be. We're not to feign humility by belittling ourselves. God created us, gave us gifts, we're made in his image. We're also not to give a higher estimation of ourselves than we ought. We are to have an accurate view of ourselves in light of being created by God and in a relationship with God. That humble attitude is not created in a vacuum. Colossians, uh, Colossians 3, uh, 12 clearly tells us that humility is in conjunction with God's work in our life. And it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. So this idea is pronounced in our text as it's God's chosen ones. And I think it's it's echoed in, in a much different way that God gives grace to the humble. So the idea that God has chosen us, so he's equipped us. Or God has given us grace so that we can actually operate in humility. He provides all that is needed to fulfill our needs instead of us opting for some kind of you know, desperate control or manipulation. God blesses us as we humble ourselves before him and one another. Now, one of the reasons for putting on humility is given in our passage that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a quotation from Proverbs 3.34. And it's also repeated in James, and it's repeated here. Just in case you didn't get it once, you got to have it repeated several times. Wisdom is gained as we recognize pride in our life. Let's stop right now. Let's just bow our heads. And let's just say a simple prayer to the Lord, just, just between you and God. And let's, let's just say, God, just between you and him, help me to recognize my pride. Help me to walk in humility. May your word speak to me. Lord, start with me in this. Amen. So, how is pride manifested in our lives? If you were to look through each time that pride is mentioned, you'll, you'll get some gems here. Now, there's no way that I can cover all of them, but let me just highlight a few of how pride is manifested in the life of the Christian. First, spiritual things become a burden. Deuteronomy says, Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out 
from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And then we read in Hosea, the pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Those who are prideful, you know, and, and let's just keep it to us Christians, turn from God and do not pursue him. And there are seasons in which we can all do this. And Christians who find themselves in this state, as these passages intimate, see spiritual things a burden, right? And when believers think they don't need fellowship, they don't need the community, they don't need the teaching of the word, this is God's estimation. They are walking in pride. Prideful in their assumptions that they do not need God or his provision. I'm not going to comment on this next one, but we also learn that we experience unrest in the soul. Habakkuk says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. His soul is not right within him. Uh, we also selfishly hold on to material possessions as God has given us. doesn't mean it's wrong to have material possessions, but it's having that death grip with material possessions. Um, Second Chronicles says, But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Here's a blessed man who had many things. And he selfishly held on to them and took pride in his acquisitions. Okay? Again, it's not having stuff. It's the inability or unwillingness to be generous. And that's really the antidote for materialism, is generosity. Is that, you know what? I hold it with an open hand. God help me to use this car, this home, this money for you, however you want it used, okay? I'm going to start first with paying your bills, and then how can you uh, use this? How does God want you to be a good steward of this? You know, I'm sure every pastor asks this, and you might occasionally ask, why do people get so bugged out about money in the church whenever money is talked about? Now, certainly, uh, there are, I suppose, churches who give uh, you know, uh, an uh, inordinate amount of emphasis upon it, okay? Um, but why are we so sensitive? Can it not be the case that sometimes maybe it's our hearts and how we're approaching that, that we don't want to hear instruction because maybe innately we know there might be some materialism that's going on in us. I've been that way, but I need the instruction of God's word. I need to be reminded that I'm to be a good steward of this. Hosea 13.6 says, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. And so, instead of pushing back upon the instruction in God's word, we ought to receive it. And the fact is, is that materialism is pride. We're, we're taking pride in things that don't last. Next is that we become insolent towards spiritual leaders, and this is mainly what Peter was trying to say, how our 
pride is shown, we become insolent toward spiritual leaders. I mean, God has called people to lead the church um, and were to follow. But a lot of times, there are people that are disloyal, untrusting, constantly undermining, know-it-alls, always commenting on what should be done. And such a position is one of pride. Um, so, these are just some of the ways in which pride is seen in the church. It's a premier characteristic of our flesh, pride, right? So, we need to be quick to recognize its ugly head when it raises itself in us. God is opposed to the proud, our passage says. He's opposed to the proud. How does that take place? Well, what do the scriptures teach us about this? First is that God can bring disgrace to the proud. Uh, Proverbs 11.2 says when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And in Isaiah 2.11, the proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of a man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Maybe the biggest lesson we can get from this is we just cannot mess with a holy God. Right? He, he recognizes the pride. He will address it. God will not tolerate that even in Christians. We will find ourselves hitting our head up against the wall when we turn our nose to him. Also, God can take away positions of power. Uh, Leviticus 26 says, I will break down your pride of power. And in Daniel, when it spoke of Nebuchadnezzar, we read, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud and he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. Now, here's another one about pride. God may allow our pride to impact upon our family. Um, Ezekiel 24, 21, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword. And then um, in 24, 25, as for you, son of man, Will it not be on that day that I will take from you their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, your heart's desire, their sons and their daughters? So there was an impact upon families. I wish this were not true, but unfortunately, pride impacts the home. I don't know how many times I've told my kids, I was joking, but in some ways, I guess not. Not just growing up in a pastor's home, but for me, being your father, I will pay for your therapy, all right? <laughs> um, the, the, the fact is, is that fathers can drive their children and his spouse to places that limit the ability for close relationships in the home because he's so prideful, particularly in his authoritarianism, or always having the right answer, or refusing to admit when he's wrong. Now, also mothers could maybe manipulate at the expense of a child's self-image. And when adulthood arrives, 
that continued manipulation wreaks havoc upon the family. So pray now that, that when you see this pride, you can address it. Um, I mean, one of our problems for Janet and I, uh, when uh, you know, we were just kind of in these early stages of, of parenting, is all of us want to get it right, but it can very closely associate itself with just thinking we can get it down perfect, this kind of perfectionism, right? Um, pray now that God will free you up from that and that you can, you can parent with, with an openness, with a vulnerability, just addressing the gaps. And instead of perfectionism, you know what we've repeated so many times with our kids? I am sorry. I screwed up. I was wrong here. Okay? That is much preferred over pride that has a difficult time admitting that we're at fault or that we've raised this ridiculous standard or that we're not allowing our kids to live with joy and, and freedom. So respect doesn't come by perfection, but by being open to allow God to change you when he knocks on the door of your heart. Right? Next, is that God can allow our unrepentant pride to impact our physical bodies and our motivation. When David was guilty of his sin and was too proud to admit it, he said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So here we read of David kind of losing his, his motivation and his physical body was negatively impacted. And there are multiple studies that show that we, when we internalize much of the the stress and the problems of life, instead of being humble about it and admitting it, that it affects us physically. Next is that God can wait to resist our pride at reward time. Now, not that reward time is uh, retributive, but it's the fact that we don't get rewarded for things that we thought we would be rewarded for. I think of this in terms of pastoring, that, you know, I could preach a sermon, we could have people come to Christ, you could build buildings, and it could all be done in pride. And God may use that, he may use you, but he won't reward you. You see the difference? Uh, I mean, don't you often ask when you hear of pastors having issues and problems, and you think, man, how did their church grow? How were they able to do that, and the, and the guy is such a weirdo? How did that happen? Okay? Well, because God is God. He's powerful. But listen to this. It's amazing that God uses any of us. <laughs> okay? We've all got problems. We've all got skeletons. We've all got issues. And so I have to remind myself not to be in some critical spirit about this guy or that guy, but realize, hey, it's amazing that God uses any of us. And, and so uh, at reward time, I don't want it to be revealed that I was operating in a, in a prideful, selfish way, um, but that God will reward the humility. And in 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about 
rewards being burnt up, okay? I certainly don't want to see that happen. So there'll be consequences to these things, to, to pride in our life. And we want to admit our sin and respond with humility. And then our passage ends with saying that God gives grace to the humble. Now, I, I can't exhaust that concept, but it's interesting to meditate on and to think about how God gives great provision for the humble. He enjoys pouring things out for the humble. How does he bless the humble? Well, one is, we've already talked about it, he gives rewards. Um, Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor comes humility. He exalts the humble. Now, certainly God can bring blessing to this life, but I think the full import of those rewards, that honor, that blessing is reward in the afterlife. I mean, 1 Peter 5, 6 says that the reward will come at the proper time. Maybe not even in this life. That's encouragement if maybe you are struggling to love a spouse that's unlovely. That's encouraging if you're continuing to be faithful in the ministry and you feel like you're not getting thanks enough. That's encouraging if your children don't return at all the love that you give them. But that God knows that. He sees that. He will reward that faithfulness and humility. Luke 14 gives a passage where people are choosing during a wedding feast a place to sit that was a place of honor where they would be recognized. And Jesus said, don't do that. Look for the, the humble seat, the humble place instead. And there's much reward for the person who seeks humility in their life. And verse 14 of Luke 14 says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so God is promising us that there is a reward for humble service and faithfulness in his name, certainly to come in the next life. Not necessarily in this one, but it could be. That's all up to God, all right? Also, when we humble ourselves, we experience greater intimacy with God. Second Chronicles 34 says, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. And then the psalmist in Psalm 1017 says, oh Lord, you've heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. It's like, you know, you see this picture of God stooping down, listening, shh, shh, shh. I want to hear this, right? And not that God is hard of hearing, but you know what I'm saying. It's the idea that God is paying special attention to the humble. He inclines his ear. And so it obviously follows that the more we're communicating this way, the more we're growing in this relationship, the greater the intimacy. Okay? Listen, intimacy does not come in your marriage because you're just talking more. 
because you're giving more lessons. Intimacy really comes when we listen to one another. We understand one another, the depth of the relationship. There's a guy you probably haven't heard of. His name is Franz Moore, M-O-H-R. And he once claimed, I play the piano more in Carnegie Hall than anybody else, but I have no audience. See, Moore was the chief technician for world-famous piano makers, Steinway and Sons. And he died this year. And the New York Times had his obituary on April 17th. And it described how more work, let me quote, sometimes a string would snap or a pedal would need adjusting during a concert. And he would step into the spotlight for a moment. But he did much of his work alone on that famous stage and others around the world. He might have been mistaken for a pianist trying out a nine-foot grand for a recital until he reached for his tools and began making minute adjustments, giving a tuning pin a tiny twist or a hammer a slight shave. For years, he went where the pianist went. He played before presidents and foreign dignitaries. He also attended to the world's famous performers' personal pianos. But he never begrudged taking a back seat to his stars. His boss, Henry Steinway, once said, To understand Franz, one must understand that his Christian faith is at the core of his being and affects everything he says and does. Moore claims that he loved being a faithful plotter who strove, in the words of Jesus, to be faithful in little things, end quote. I wouldn't mind on my tombstone to just have the words, faithful plotter. I think that's pretty good. Maybe not a lot of glitz. Not real popular. Faithful in the little things. That's okay. Don't need, don't need the recognition. Just want to be faithful to the one who's called me. Humility. Let's pray.